Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. I am joined today by author and journalist, Lisa Tadeo. Lisa's first nonfiction book, Three Women, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller. It is currently in production as a series at Showtime, with Shailene Woodley starring and Lisa adapting and serving as executive producer. Three Women is a fascinating book on sexual desire. It takes a deep dive into the sex lives and relationships of three American women who live in different parts of the country. These women include Maggie, who has a sexual relationship with one of her teachers in high school that ultimately devastates her psychologically. Then there's Lena, who is in a passionless relationship with her husband that prompts her to seek out an affair with her high school crush. Finally, there's Sloane, who has an active sex life with her husband, a man she desires above all others, yet she has sex with other men, and sometimes with women, while her husband watches. Following three women, Lisa published her debut fiction novel, Animal, a national and international bestseller. Animal tells the story of Joan, a woman who has endured a lifetime of cruelty from men and eventually forges the power to strike back. And finally, Lisa's latest book, Ghost Lover, is a collection of short stories that feature a series of women who are searching for and frequently struggling to find fulfillment in their lives. Across all of Lisa's works, women are the center and there are strong themes of sexual desire, sexual trauma, and sexual double standards. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be exploring these prominent themes in Lisa's writings. This is going to be a fascinating conversation that you won't want to miss. So stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. The Modern Sex Therapy Institutes provides continuing education, certifications, and a PhD in sexology to mental health and medical professionals across the globe. MSTI is a one-stop shop for ASEC sex therapy certification requirements, including education, sexual attitude reassessment, and supervision. MSTI offers flexible payment plans and learning options. Attend from anywhere in the world and learn from experts on sex and relationships. For more information on their programs and offerings, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Want to last longer in bed? Our friends at Permesin can help. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. You can customize it for your own body and desensitize only the areas you want. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and is physician-recommended. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at promescent.com where you'll also find an extensive selection of lubricants, supplements, condoms, and more. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. Hi, Lisa, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It is wonderful to speak with you again. The last time we chatted was when Three Women originally came out, and I am just so happy for you and the success you had with that book and everything else that has come after. Thank you so much. That's so kind. As a starting point for a conversation, I'd like to ask how you became a writer. Writing is something that I wanted to do since about the fourth grade. I was a very avid reader back then. Books were my escape. They were my safe place as a kid who just never fit in and was relentlessly bullied. 
And as a kid, I tried my own hand at writing several times, and mostly it was science fiction writing because it was this chance to create my own world. It was an escape from reality. And so in that way, it was kind of this form of therapy. It was a coping mechanism. And as I became a more confident person in adulthood, my writing transitioned from being, okay, this isn't about me anymore, but it became more about how can I use my writing to help other people? So writing started serving this very different purpose in my adult life, but that's enough about me. So Lisa, can you tell us what it is that drew you to writing and what do you love or enjoy about being a writer? Such a good question. I feel like we have pretty similar backgrounds with it. I was an avid reader as a kid and I would read, you mentioned science fiction, me too. I read a lot of Ray Bradbury, loved Stephen King, John Saul. I would read whatever was kind of left over at the town pool, those like silly paperbacks. I read like V.C. Andrews' Flowers in the Attic when I was nine or 10, totally inappropriate. I did a lot of inappropriate reading as a kid of like whatever was left behind, not in, I mean, inappropriate for my age. Before I was able to read, I used to read books to my stuffed animals at night, like making up my own words since I couldn't read yet. And then I started writing short stories. So for me, it was very similar. It was like books felt like something to escape to. I I had a lot of fears and anxiety as a kid and books really calmed me down. So as I like now in my life now, I mean, you know, you and I obviously do different types of writing and your writing is much more is much more to help. But I do feel like that's the same desire in me is making people feel less alone the way that I did. So that what you were saying really rang true to me. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And I can relate. I did a lot of inappropriate reading myself (laughs) as a kid. Like I remember, you know, this was in like the fifth or sixth grade and I'm at, you know, this private Catholic school. And I was reading books like The Prince of Tides and Stephen King's It. And like, these were books that were not age appropriate at all. But fun, but great books. (laughs) Yeah. And hey, it helped to expand my vocabulary and my mind at a very young age. Exactly. (laughs) So let's talk about Three Women, which is a book that is ultimately about sexual desire. Now, the last time that we spoke, you told me that you didn't initially set out to write a book about sexual desire and that it took you some time to figure out what you were going to focus on. And you told me that one of the first places you started that sort of set you on the journey of writing this book was a trip to the porn castle in San Francisco. (laughs) Have you been there? I have not been. And I don't know that it's still there anymore. It's not still there. It's one of the things that, you know, if if it were there, definitely would have gone, Um, (laughs) probably would have written a book about it myself. But can you tell us how your visit to the porn castle sort of led you down this path of writing this book that is soon to become a television series? Yeah, sure. So when I first started researching, it was kind of, you know, it's like sometimes you just you don't know where to start. You know, I mean, Kinsey is one of the first places I I really started, but that was post the the porn castle. You know, I was just Googling things, asking around. I, I don't remember who told me about the porn castle how I found out about it, but I was like, all right, you know what? I'll just start with that. Like that'll be one of my first visits. Um, cause I hadn't been to the West coast yet for the book. I was kind of like researching around New York city where I live. That was like the beginning of like, I need to start moving around. 
so yeah, I, I went. There was a young woman there who was very young. I think she had just turned 18. And she was a queer woman in a relationship with a female director. And the female director was directing her having sex with men. And I found that to be really intriguing. And it was kind of a mixture of like, I will talk to this young woman about her experience doing this and how does it feel for her girlfriend who's directing her doing this. You know, it was an interesting situation. And one of the first things I saw was this young woman being hogtied, like her feet and legs, and then kind of raised up by a pulley system to the ceiling. And then there was like a machine that was penetrating her. So that was like the first thing I saw at the porn castle. Then they took me on a tour and there was lots of rooms of, of mostly women on computers masturbating in front of paying customers. There was an enema room, which was just all tiles and bleach in the corner. And there was like a room full of like toys. Uh, it was just, it was a lot of wild stuff. I mean, it was really in interesting. But what I kind of figured out there was that, well, well for one, the young woman and, and her director girlfriend, who were super interesting and everything that they were saying was really illuminating. But there was no real conflict. Everything about what their lives were like was totally fine with them, which was great. But sort of, this is just our job. I realized that that was not what I wanted to discuss. It was just a job for them. And when they went home, they left it at the porn castle. And I found it brilliant and aspirational. But for the book, it, it was like, I was like, you know, I'm looking for something where it's not just a job because, you know, I had read Studs Terkel's Working, where he has just a couple of pages on an escort and her daily life. And I had also spoken to an escort. I was talking to a lot of people in the sex work industry. And I was looking for someone, not just in the industry, but somewhere it was natural to start with the sex work industry because people who do that work are pretty like this is what we do I'll talk about what I do and you know it's hard to get people to talk about sex so it was easy to get them to talk about sex but often they were such professionals that it was really a job that they could really like leave at work the way that I can't leave my non-sex <laughs> work at the job so I was very impressed across the board but that's kind of where I was like you know this is great and intriguing but I'm, I'm writing a different book is when I is what I kind of realized I need people who have wants that have to do with sex that are not part of their job because I wasn't writing working and I totally understand that idea about how some people really can kind of dissociate sex from everything else if they work sort of in that sex work industry. And I've interviewed some sex workers for the podcast before, and it is just a job for them. And it's kind of funny in some ways where people have these ideas about what it's like to work in the porn industry and what being on a porn set is like. And they think everybody's just constantly aroused all the time and <laughs> all of these other sorts of things. And it's like, no, it's actually just a job. And yeah. you know, it's this thing where you can leave it at work and come home and it doesn't really define you or affect how you approach sex in your own personal life. So I want to ask a follow-up question to this. So when you did start interviewing people about 
their sexual desires. You know, I get this question all the time myself as somebody who studies sexual fantasies is how do you get people to talk about sex? Because as you <laughs> mentioned, this is such a hard thing for so many people because we often have a lot of hangups about it. So how do you get people to give you so much intimate detail about their lives? The first thing that I did, not as a tactic or anything, but just because I kind of realized that asking people about it without giving anything of myself felt like an unfair parameter because yes I was interviewing people but I also wasn't I wasn't like in your capacity you know as like a doctor interviewing that's like a a very knowable thing and and it's easy to explain and you're like you know I'm a doctor I'm a research fellow at Kinsey I'm asking them there everyone's like oh okay it's research it's cool so I was researching but I was also like researching emotions and I didn't have a doctorate and so I was like, you know, without these things, I am just a person in the world with a tape recorder and a pen and paper. The only thing I felt comfortable doing was talking to them like a human being and not having it be like an interview where it was them. It would be like, you know, this is how I feel about it. Have you ever? So it was it was kind of even though they knew that I was interviewing them for a book, it was also kind of talking like a friend. And like I said, you know, it wasn't like a tactic. It just kind of felt like the normal way to do it. The main boundary I had was that if somebody were asking me for advice, I wouldn't really give it because I didn't want to affect the trajectory of their lives by being involved in it. You know, I think when people ask for advice, the most you can do for another person is tell them about something similar that you went through and how you handled it. Because I think that giving advice, unless you have the real knowledge and understanding of the situation, is kind of a fool's errand. And it also, it's not an empowering thing to do. I think it's more empowering to give people information and let them make their own decisions. So that was how I, I tried to maintain a bit of distance and journalistic integrity while also being close with them and caring about what they were saying and doing. I love that approach. And I follow a very similar approach in my own life because I get asked for advice all the time on sex and relationships. <laughs> I'm sure. And it's not my place to tell you what you should be doing in the bedroom or how you should operate and run your relationships. What I can do is say, here is what the best available data and information mm -hmm. say. Here are different schools of thought and you need to figure out what it is that you want and what it is that's right for you because ultimately it's about you. It's not about me. Exactly. Now, all of the stories in Three Women are fascinating, but I want to talk about Lena's for a moment. And part of what prompted Lena to have an affair is that her husband refused to kiss her on the mouth. And in some of the other interviews I've heard you give since the book's release, you talked about how some of the reactions you received to the stories you chose to tell were essentially characterizing Lena's story as pathetic. And I want to hear about your response to criticisms like that, that some women's stories just aren't worth telling. What's your reaction? What's your response to that? It's so shocking. It was shocking to hear that notion that, you know, I think with the Me Too movement and other progressions we've made, uh, obviously, there's been a lot of steps backwards as well. But with a lot of the progressions, a lot of 
good things have come out of conversations we're having. But one of the things that you know I've said a lot is that I feel like there's been an inverse movement in a way where we need to only tell stories of powerful women who don't chase after the wrong man or woman, who don't have affairs with married men, who don't X, Y, Z, whatever the moral code of the day is. And that's the thing. It's constantly shifting. So we're constantly shifting to adjust to that. And we shift in the way that we tell people what to desire, which, and desire doesn't really change. I mean, it, it kind of who you're into, what you're into, and you know more about this than me, but you know, it's, it's, it's something that's kind of starts when you're younger. It's in, it's, you know, part of its nature and the nurture and then experiences you have, et cetera. What you end up desiring when you're 30 or whatever is not quote unquote your fault. And Lena wanting this man who, you know, is extramarital for one. So that's one strike against her and her community, which was very Catholic and and marriage-oriented, no infidelity, no divorce. The most egregious thing for most people was not the extramarital part of the relationship, but the fact that he did not court her or chase after her, that she was the one chasing after him. And what I found so invigorating about Lena's story was that here was this woman who, against all odds, was going after something she wanted after having been the victim of a group rape as a young woman, after having been on the receiving end of not receiving anything from her husband, no touching or anything for almost a decade of of no kissing when all she wanted was to kiss someone, for Lena to literally just upend her life and go after this man for me, was someone finally taking control of what they wanted. And even if the path was kind of a a broken one and not the best one, I thought that people who judged her and who thought that she was pathetic, as so many people said, really shocked me. Not, not, it just shocked me because it was like, what, how much of our own experiences do we want to read and think we should read onto others? And why do we get to make that judgment? And moreover, I thought that Lena was an agent of change in a remarkable way. It, and it's it's not for me to judge the morality of her situation. Another thing that I found so often with people judging, with specifically women judging other women, is that they slash we often do it until we're in the same position. And then we're like, oh, uh, I'll, I'll never forget. I had a friend who um, I, I was having panic attacks after my parents passed away. And I was talking to her and she was a great friend. But when I started having panic attacks, she like couldn't, she didn't know how to help me. I didn't know how to sort of explain to her what was going on. So I would just, we were uh, neighbors in an apartment complex. I would just go to the back into my room and and suffer quietly like a cat. And she would just kind of be confused and didn't know how to relate to me. And then two years later, something happened in her life, which set off a series of panic attacks. And she called me and she said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't know how to help you. And I mean, it wasn't her fault, obviously, or anything. But I do think, uh, just to bring it back to Lena, that there's this empathy that we lack 
when we're looking at someone else's experiences, if we haven't had them ourselves, we judge them. And if we do have them, we don't. And it's very simple. So what I wanted to do with three women and what I hope to do with everything that I create is sort of create that empathy through line that we should all be able to see. I've been a perpetrator of the same thing, but I try my best to look at something and go, oh, I I could be there one day. And I I think it's the same thing is true of age. You know, young people look at old people like never going to get there. And old people look at young people like they're not as intelligent and that they're not going to get where it's, it's just to me, it's shocking that we are all so very much the same. We would just pick out the differences and go, instead of like illuminating the differences and celebrating them, we just like point at them and, and get angry. So that's sorry for the long winded response, but (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I love it. And it reminds me so much of the quote that I use to open my book, Tell Me What You Want, which is a quote from Alfred Kinsey, who says, we are the recorders and reporters of facts, not the judges of the behaviors that we describe. And I think that so much of us, whether we're sex scientists or not, when we're just hearing about learning about other people's sex lives and relationships, taking that step back and not being judgmental of them and trying to have that empathy, I think is so, so important. Now, in one of the many interviews I've heard you give, you said this line that really stood out to me. The two things that I'm most interested in and the two things that I think drive most of our lives are sex and death. Mm-hmm. I found this to be a fascinating line because it's basically exactly what Freud would have said, right? <laughs> Freud described human beings as having this life instinct that he called Eros and a death instinct that he called Thanatos. I read a lot of stuff for the book, but I didn't go as deep into Freud as I wanted to. There's a lot you could say about Freud, and I discard most of it. You know, if you were to read my human sexuality textbook, I say, you know, here are some of the things Freud said that kind of made sense, and then here's all the things that we need to discard. So I don't think you necessarily need to do a deep dive into that. But I think, you know, he was onto something, and I see this theme running through your work that sex and death are these two really powerful things. And I see this when I talk to a lot of sex therapists. Uh, For example, I'm thinking about a conversation I had with a sex therapist who had a male client she was seeing who was committing serial infidelity. And he was in this like really happy marriage and loved his wife and they had a great sex life and he didn't want to leave, but he kept cheating. And when they got to the root of the issue, ultimately he had this fear of death and sex was the only thing that made him feel alive. And so it was sort of using sex to counteract that fear of death. But anyway, that's just one example of sort of how sex and death, I think, can be connected for for some people. But can you just tell us a little bit more about this idea of sex and death and why it's such a common theme throughout a lot of your writings? There's so many ways that we fill our days, right? Besides our jobs, we like, oh, what should we put wallpaper in that room? Or, you know, sh- this trip or how, what, what is this person? Like there's, there's all these little little things that we fill our days up with that are natural parts of how we kind of pretend that that we're not all going to die one day. Um, that, that kind of question is what plagues my daily life is that 
that's all that there really is. Um, and we fill our days with all these other things. When one of those other two things strikes, the desire for sex or the fear of losing someone that we, you know, whatever, or the the loss of a human being or the fear of the loss of a human being, those are the things that are sort of the undercurrent that informs how able we are to think about all the other stuff. So I always come back to those two topics. For me, I'm always talking about grief or sex. I think that, you know, sex is something that, I mean, I can be, it's funny that I can be sort of very prudish in a sense, not prudish about hearing or listening to things. I love hearing and listening. And I'm like, very obviously, I mean, it's something I love asking people questions about it. But for my own self, I feel like I'm not, I'm not this sort of sexually free creature um, that I that I see in other people and I, I aspire to that in a way, but I'm not. I have a lot of hangups. I have a lot of things. And so that's part of it. It's not, I think saying sex sometimes is like, oh, we're talking about the actual act. And it's like, no, for me, it, it it's all of the things that take into account whether you feel attractive to another person, whether you feel attractive to yourself. It's all of that stuff that kind of starts at puberty and and doesn't leave us and and makes our all of our makes up all of our days. Yeah. It sounds to me as if <laughs> if you were going to be a social psychologist, you would be what we would call a terror management theorist. And terror management Ooh. theory is this idea that we all have this paralyzing fear of death. And so we build culture and everything else as a distraction, as a way to cope with that existential threat. And sex is one of those things that can be a coping mechanism for dealing with a lot of this. And when in psychological experiments, you make people's own mortality salient. So if you actually have people sit there and write about the prospect of their own impending death, this can prompt changes in how they think about sex and their likelihood of wanting to have sex and engage in, for example, unprotected sex and have riskier and other kinds of sex, right? So there's all these sorts of ways that we go through life trying to cope with that fear of death. And so it's it's just a different way of thinking about some of the things that you were just saying. It just strikes true to me as something that I've seen represented in the psychological literature. So I'm a terror management social non-scientist. <laughs> yep. Sounds like <laughs> Okay, <it. laughs> great. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for giving me that non-doctorate. I will now I will now take it and and cure the world. <laughs> so, let me ask you a question about Animal, which is a very different book than Three Women. It explores a lot of similar themes in Three Women, but in a very different way. And as I've heard you discuss before, Animal was in a lot of ways an outgrowth of Three Women. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and sort of the connection between these two books? I know Three Women is this nonfiction book based on your interviews with these actual women, whereas Animal is a fictional novel that sort of explores a lot of these themes in a different way. For me, Animal was more personal. Joan, the protagonist, loses her family when she's quite young. And then the sort of fallout from how she loses them kind of defines her path into the world of being a woman in a man's world. Um, For me, I, I lost my parents not as young as my character does. She loses them when she's 10 and I was in my early 20s. 
But the loss of my parents fundamentally restructured my whole way of, of thinking about life. And so animal in animal, there's a lot of that grief is represented and is dealt with. And for me, it's, you know, I, I said it in one of my short stories and I was talking to someone yesterday and they were like, I feel like that's a really great way of describing it. I, I felt like after losing my parents that I had been bitten by a tiger. That's like what it felt like. Like there was a giant, like some, a tiger had like taken a giant bite out of the side of my body. And I was like walking around with like only a quarter of a body left, but no one could see it. And that feeling was so all-consuming to not be able to describe it and to not have anyone be able to see it, kind of like the way mental illness is, frankly. I think it's it's so wild to me that, you know, not to get super dark or anything, but like, you know, after the the shooting in Texas at the school, the fact that we are kind of like, okay, or, or you know, anything happening in Ukraine, any any atrocity happening anywhere in the world we are kind of meant to continue with our days, no matter what it's done to our brains. Whereas if we have a sniffle, you know, we can stay home. Um, I mean, obviously that's changed in the COVID world. The sniffle means even more than it ever did. But it's that feeling of like, there's nothing tangible that you can see on someone. And so for me, Animal was like, you don't know who's walking around beside you. You don't know what has happened in their lives, you know. It's it was kind of like just in case you meet someone who strikes you as a little bit, you know, rageful or this or that, like take a second to either think about what could be going on or maybe even ask, are you okay? I don't think we do that enough as human beings. Um I don't think we ask each other if if we're okay and really and really want to know the answer. I think you're totally right with that. And it's (laughs) unfortunate that it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where there's that sort of lack of empathy, where unless you've kind of gone through that same thing that somebody else has, or at least had a similar experience, it can be hard to relate. And we live in this world now where it's really unfortunate that we're surrounded by these terrible things, atrocities that happen every single day. And I think part of it is that we kind of become numb to them in a way. We have to create these barriers because we're just bombarded by this terrible news all the time. And I don't know what the answer or solution is to that, other than that, you know, we can't just keep ignoring these things and you know pretending like they don't exist because that's not going to create a solution to any of these many many problems that we have. Exactly. Now, let me ask you a question about your latest book Ghost Lover. When I saw the title and the brief description of the book, I was like, "Holy shit, is this a book about Ghostbot?" It was an app that was developed a couple of years ago, which is basically like let's say you're dating or seeing someone and you don't want to do it anymore, you can outsource your ghosting of that person to a computer program. So basically all of their texts and emails go there. And then you've got this AI account that replies on your behalf. So you don't have to deal with it anymore. Oh my God, that's amazing. (laughs) So I totally thought that was what the book was going to be about, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But next next book, the, the sequel to Ghost Lover will be Ghost Bot. You can tell us Great. more about that. But <laughs> tell us a little bit about what Ghost Lover is about. What are what's what's running through these the series of nine short stories? It's sex and death, once again. The titular story, Ghost Lover, 
is, you know, essentially a sister of that ghost bot, I, I would assume, only it's not about ghosting. Well, the way the idea came to me is when I was in my 20s, single in Manhattan, dating in, in New York, I think is a, is a hellscape. It's a wild place and there's always someone better. There's just so much going on. And I and and for me and my friends and the people I was interviewing, because by that point I had started researching my book, the early phases of it, my friends and I would be sitting like on the floor of one of our apartments eating like takeout Chinese food and like unpacking text messages and and then like, you know, we'd get to this point where we'd like we'd be so obsessed with another human being. And, and it was just like the obsession was, you know, I can see now and I probably would be blind to it if it happened again. If I go back to that sort of pool, that sort of thing, it overtakes everything else. You become blind to the right way to talk and to and to speak and to represent yourself. So my friends and I would often be like, here, just, you know, t- you take my phone for the night and just and just and of course, we'd never actually give it because we were like, oh, no, never mind. I got I to gotta take it back. And so Ghost Lover, the idea for that was that there'd be a service of like very like cool girls who knew what they were doing and who had MFAs and, you know, were great at writing and great at relationships. And their job was to write all of your communiques with the person that you were interested in. And there's another dating app story in there. For me, a lot of uh, this book is about dating in one's, you know, 20s, 30s, and beyond and 40s. and, and, And it's also about ageism. The need to compete with other women mostly um, in a heterosexual reality for for men, the biological thing behind that, that, you know, men are meant to spread their seed and women are meant to stay at home and care for the child. For me, Ghost Lover is like the sort of societal after effects of, of that biological truism that that is not true in our in our society, but that is true in our biologies. And so it kind of wrecks you if you're on the bad end of it. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Lisa. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of one of your many amazing books? My Instagram handle is Lisa D. Tadeo. You can get animal uh, three women or ghost lovers anywhere books are sold and bookshop.org supporting local bookstores is one of my favorite things to do. And I, I hope everyone continues doing that. The adaptation of three women will be coming to Showtime this fall. And there's a first look on Vanity Fair just so you can see a trailer of um, what it looks like, which I'm really excited for everyone to see. I'm really excited too. So many amazing things happening for you. Thank you again for your time, Lisa. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform, or I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and all of Lisa's amazing books, including Three Women, Animal, and Ghost Lover. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.